If you open your Bibles, uh, actually, uh, you can put your finger in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. We'll get there in a second. I've got some pictures for you here. Bourbon Street, New Orleans. Times Square, New York. Hollywood Boulevard, Los Angeles. The Strip in Las Vegas. And good old Fairbanks, Alaska. I was going to get a picture of South Cushman, but, you know, someone presented me with this one, and I thought, you know, when you get a moose making a bad decision, you gotta, you got to use that one. <laughs> you know and I know that in every city, in every town in America, there is a street, there is a region, a neighborhood that attracts the seedy and the immoral activities of a community. Everybody knows where it is. Right, And some steer clear of it, and others, like moths to a flame, are drawn to it, and eventually burned by it. Uh, and in the first century world, that place was Corinth. Uh, second only to Rome itself in terms of its influence and its stature, Corinth was known to be the center of all things sinful. Uh, and so this morning, as we begin to uh, transition to our new series, uh, and our study in the book of First Corinthians, which I've titled Messy Christianity. Uh, we need to take some time to look at the region and the culture and what was happening in the city of Corinth so that we can gain an overall perspective of the book uh, before we dive into the first chapter, which we'll do next week. And I do want to remind you, friends, this is something that you should be doing as a regular part of your Bible reading Your Bible study and your devotional reading should always take time before you go into a book to unpack it. See what the book's about. See what the region is. See what's happening. Why is it there? Get the context before you dive into the minutiae. I'm just coming back from hunting, so I'll use a hunting illustration for you. When you're glassing the hills and you're looking for a bullwinkle, right, you need to do two different things. You need to have the the binoculars down, and you need to see everything. What stands out? What's moving? What's happening? And then you need to take the binoculars up and you need to scan systematically. And then you need to take them down and watch again without. And it's a back and forth thing, keeping the large picture and the details in view. And we need to do that with good Bible reading as well. And so this morning we're going to take a look at the big picture and see what's happening here before we go in and we take uh, a close view. Remember this, that the Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. Each book of the Bible was written to a specific audience at a specific time and place under certain circumstances, and we have to understand what was being said and understood by the original hearers if we're going to understand how that meaning is uh, uh, significant for us today. And so we have to do our homework, and perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, it it may be important to understand the cultural and regional background behind Corinth if we're going to understand Paul's message to them and through them, the prevailing message to us. Uh, so a couple of things. If you take out your notes, and we'll kind of go through this together and get a good background so that next week when we dive in, we can make sense of some things. First of all, Corinth was very, very strategically located. Uh, it was a large city. Here, I'll give you the, a map here. You can see where it is in relationship to Italy. Uh, it's kind of down there 
uh, lower part of Greece off that, uh, well, I'll get my laser out. Do I have a laser on this one? <laughs> Something to think about for Christmas. I don't have a laser. <laughs> right there in the, lo- the lower portion there, uh, if you, can, you, you have to squint to see it. That lower, lowest dot you can see right there on that little isthmus, uh, sort of connecting Achaia and uh, the lower part, portion of Greece there. We see Corinth. And uh, again, it was, a, it was a large population, 700,000 people. So really, the population of Alaska uh, right there. And uh, it was located on two major trade routes. Uh, so it had two, two major seaports. And because it was located on this isthmus, uh, there was, uh, oftentimes, boats would come to shore. And instead of having to sail all the way around it, they would actually ferry them across land. Uh, today, there is now the, the Corinthian Canal. There's this canal that's finished, and you can, you can see quite large boats actually will, will go right through it. But it was a nice shortcut to make a dangerous trip a lot less dangerous. And that brought, as you can imagine, a lot of business, a lot of activity, a lot of trade, a lot of people, a lot of diverse culture, a lot of religions, a lot of money, and a lot of problems. That was Corinth. Um, Politically, we would say this. Politically and culturally, it was kind of a wide open uh, city. It was a new Roman colony, or at least fairly new. It was being reestablished, but it didn't have any sort of established aristocracy. And so it was really wide open almost for social climbing or advancement or, or these kinds of things. Kind of like uh, the Homestead Act in the 1800s, where people could go and stake their claim, and a lot of people did that here in Alaska. Or in the gold rush, the Klondike gold rush in the late 1800s, 1896, where uh, I think it was 100,000 people uh, made for Alaska uh, looking for gold, some coming over the Chilkoot Trail, uh, or even the uh, Alaskan oil boon in the 1960s. People came here looking for the opportunities and for the advancement that Alaska offered, and the same was true of Corinth. It was a very opportunistic town. There was a way to move your way up sort of the social ladder and gain a standing and influence uh, if you want to. There was no obstacles holding you back. And so this was a community where the money was flush and the morality was thin. Uh, It was a city with a lot of entertainment, some decent and some not decent uh, one of the things they were well known for was uh, the Ismithian Games. You might call it the X Games of uh, the first century. Not as big as the Olympics in Rome, but something that was held every couple of years and drew a lot of people and a lot of activity. Um, one commentator said this, that Corinth was a place that people came to spend money on a holiday from morality. Uh, sounds like some cities today, uh, particularly Vegas comes to mind. Uh, it also was a city, one of the things culturally that was going on that is important later on as we get into the book to understand is it was a city where there was sort of a practice of patronage going on. In other words, if you had money, if you were wealthy and you had stature, you would sort of use that money to sort of buy up friends for yourself and loyalties and whatnot. And so there may not have been so much of a political movement as there was a relational kind of patronage thing going on. So you you sort of bought up people that would be loyal to you. And that was definitely something that was going on in the culture here. Spiritually, the climate, well, we'd probably call it eclectic. Very, very diverse. There was a large number of religious places, more than a dozen temples uh, in Corinth. And the primary feature of the city was a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. 
the goddess of love. And this was a particularly immoral place. This temple had over a thousand temple prostitutes there. It was a part of their cultic practice. And so you can imagine uh, what an ugly place um, that was. Uh, So the moral state of Corinth, uh, it really became a place synonymous with just debauchery, immorality, indecent behavior. Uh, In fact, a a phrase, to Corinthianize, actually became synonymous with to practice sexual immorality. Uh, That was uh, what it was known for. Uh, What I was preparing, I was thinking about uh, sort of the slogan in New York, you know, hey, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? That's a horrible New York accent. I'll work on that. (laughs) I can see the look on your eye. Judgment coming right at me. The proverb of the day on everybody's chariot, their chariot bumper sticker, uh, was a known proverb which said this, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. It was the sin city of its day. So here's the question. How do you start a church in sin city? How do you do that? Where do you start? Why would you start? What are your obstacles? And so that's why I want to look at Acts 18, and we're going to start in verse 1. And here we get to see how the Apostle Paul started this church and how God used him early on to get things going here. So Acts 18, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11 and just make a few observations. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul, And became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And I would just say to all of you, that's very good for us. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. What a a great glimpse into the formation of this church, isn't it? For those of you who love church history, Here's church history from the first century. Paul has this burden on his heart for Corinth. And I'm speculating here, but I think its strategic location must have appealed to him. If we can get a church established here among these trade routes with all of the diversity, think of where and how far the gospel could go. So there was a strategic location. And here Paul, as was customary, goes to the temple. And he starts with those Jewish God-fearers who were looking for Messiah so that he can convince them, Messiah has come. In the person of Jesus Christ. And of course we see that they were abusive and and send him on his way. But Paul is undeterred to preach the gospel and then goes to the Gentile world. The dirty, rotten Gentiles. 
and that's us. And one of the things that I, I love about the Apostle Paul in this particular story here is we're, we're going to find later on in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 9 that he defends, at one point has to defend himself to this church, defend his apostleship, and he defends the right to make a living by preaching the gospel. So he defends that. But in that same text, he also tells them that he did not avail himself of it when he was with them in Corinth. That when he came so that he could get things started, he simply made tents. And he worked alongside two friends, Priscilla and Aquila, and did a menial job. And he served there, but still a minister of the gospel. And uh, I think that's a pretty cool picture of what happens there. Uh, so the author and the occasion of this letter, well, I've already, I've already told you, but it was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we see that. He's actually writing from Ephesus. The nature of the letter, it's a response, actually. It's a response to a troubling report that has been brought his way from the household of Chloe and a letter that has come to him. The church basically came to him and said, Paul, we got trouble. So after serving there 18 months, he goes to Ephesus, receives this letter, and what we have here is his response to the church with uh, a lot of corrections. And that really speaks to the tone. The tone of the letter is that it's corrective, In fact, Paul is very seldom teaching new material. In fact, frequently what we'll see him doing is using this phrase, don't you know? He's reminding them of things they already know. He's calling them to act and to behave consistent with the knowledge that they have, things that he would have already told them when he was present with them. So he is correcting them and calling them to obedience, which they know. Um, The message of the book Uh, This is actually pretty difficult to come up with. And I want to tell you this. One of the great privileges of serving here at Bethel Church is that we serve as a team. And uh, I've had a chance to talk with Mark and Adam about the book and different things. And Adam gave me a great phrase uh, several weeks ago. And I've been thinking about it as I've been reading the book again and again. And he's just nailed it. And I'm going to use his phrase because I found no better summary from any of the commentators than what Pastor Adam gave and passed on. And that was this. The general message, the theme of the book is learning to live the crucified life. And that is it. Those in Corinth who came to Christ, those dirty, rotten Gentiles and all the rest, brought with them a lot of baggage from the life that they had lived. Uh, And Paul was essentially writing to a church that was struggling to live as godly believers in a secular culture. Uh, Gordon Fee, one of the commentators uh, that I I read in the past couple weeks here, said this. This is maybe the most memorable thing I've read about the book. The problem was not that the church was in Corinth. The problem was that Corinth was in the church. The Corinthian church was not manifesting a distinctive presence in the world. The gospel had not yet produced in them a countercultural impact. The Corinthians were ones who claimed the name of Christ, but they did not live as his followers. They continue to follow the culture of the day. Uh, And they remind me of what A.W. Tozer called vampire Christians. And Dallas Willard took this phrase and unpacked it in his own imagination with the following quote. You've heard this before from me. Vampire Christians. Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please. But I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. Vampire Christians. 
pretty good picture of what was happening in Corinth. Understand, to be a Christian is to be an apprentice of Jesus, a student of his, a follower of his, an imitator of him, following his pattern of life. To become a Christian, the easiest thing in the world, almost embarrassingly simple, it begins with repentance. We come to the Lord, we confess our sins, we acknowledge our need, we receive the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, our substitutionary atonement. He died for our sins. We receive his death on our behalf. We accept him as Lord and Savior. We're in. We have peace with God. Our sins atoned for. We have right standing with God because of what Jesus has done. To become a Christian, the easiest thing in the world. But that's just the starting line. And many people treat conversion as though it were the finish line. Uh, Some of you ran the equinox yesterday. And when the gun went off and you started at the line and you started your run, uh, a good picture of the Christian life. You start at one line. But once you cross the line of faith in Christianity, you have a whole life of discipleship ahead of you. You have a life of learning to follow Jesus and to take on his character and his nature. We have not been called to be converts or, e- or to practice easy believism, but we are to be steadily following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible knows nothing of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. In fact, it's the Apostle Paul who says uh, to Titus, young Titus, in another book, in Titus 2, uh, verse 12, he tells him that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God is not an opportunity for licentious living. It compels us to obedience. Uh, And so the book of 1 Corinthians really teases out these realities as Paul works through different areas of their life and their story. Um, They need to learn to live the crucified life. And as we follow their story and Paul's correctives to them, we too are going to learn to live the crucified life together. Um, The organization of the book, uh, this is hard, to be honest with you. Uh, trying to decipher the organization of the book of 1 Corinthians is kind of like looking at somebody's grocery shopping list and trying to decipher what sort of organizational uh, strategy they had. Uh, you know, were they thinking aisle by aisle, meal by meal? Did they have the strategy of get the heavy, dry stuff first and then get the fresh, soft stuff later? Uh, Were they thinking gradually throughout their week as they ran out of things and making a steady list and then just following that? Uh, Was it just complete randomness and and as they sat down and stream of conscious tried to think of everything that they needed just before they went? That may be the most common. Uh, It's a little hard to figure out uh, sort of the order of what Paul's doing. Any sort of organizational tool that we find eventually breaks down, but I think this one is general enough to actually be helpful. Uh, In chapters 1 through 4, we really see him talking about divisions within the church. Uh, And then in chapters 5 through 6, we see him talking about some serious disorder within the church. And then in chapters 7 through 16, we see him address a a multitude of difficulties within the church. And it alliterates, so it must be right. So that's... I was preparing for this, and I thought, you know... I always want to give us a good background in a book before we take off. But I don't want it to just be a data dump. I want to proclaim some things to you. 
And so these things that I'll proclaim to you, we take from really the book as a whole, some of the general things that are going on here. And this first thing is this. We learn from the book of 1 Corinthians that the gospel can take root anywhere. Even in sin city of the first century world, Paul maintained a confidence in the power of the gospel. Uh, No doubt because of his own conversion, one who was once a persecutor of the faith and of the church, and now its chief proponent. Uh, In fact, in Romans, we hear Paul's confidence firsthand. In Romans 1.16, he says, and you know this well, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then to the Gentiles. And we saw this, right? We saw this in our, in our background as we looked at Acts. We see that Paul went into the temple, first to the Jews. He's trying to convince these God-fearing people who are looking for Messiah. But when they didn't take the bait and when they didn't buy in, he went to the Gentiles and there the gospel took root. The gospel can take root anywhere. And I think that's incredibly encouraging to us. Do you have a family member you've been praying for for years? A loved one? A neighbor? Someone who's been resistant to the gospel? Maybe you work in an environment that's particularly hostile to the faith and to anything that has to do with the scriptures or with Christ. Uh, A wayward child? Maybe you have a Uh, access to some sort of a resistant village you have a heart for. You want to see the gospel there, but everything about that village and that place looks like no way, no way could the gospel ever go there. The story of Paul and the story of 1 Corinthians assures us that the gospel can take root anywhere. And Paul maintains that confidence. Um, Secondly, I think we learn from the book as a whole that with respect to our personal lives, the gospel should take effect everywhere. Uh, If you're looking at your notes, you'll notice that I misspelled effect. Uh, The gospel should take root even in our spelling, uh, which means (laughs) have some grace with me, please. Uh, But the gospel should take effect everywhere in our lives, in every corner of our lives. There's no part of our lives that we get to withhold and say, Lord, this part's mine, you can have the rest, but this part's mine. I guarantee you that God will come after that part and will readily And steadily lift your fingers and pry your grip from it. You can withhold no area of your life from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, We have to learn to live the crucified life in every corner. That means our finances, that means our relationships, that means our business, that means our speech in every area. Thirdly, I think we learn from the book as a whole that God can use anyone. He can use anyone. Paul's stature in this city was not one of great power and influence. He was not prominent. He was not affluent. Uh, we learn early on is that he did, not, um, he did not entrust himself really to the people of the city or participate in any of the patronage that they had going on. But he worked. He worked a menial trade so that he would not be dependent upon anybody. And Paul's ministry, especially early on, really was a blue-collar gospel effort. Uh, in a city that was ostentatious. Um, And one of the things that Paul says in the book explicitly in chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, I'll read to you. But particularly what Paul is appealing to here is, I didn't come to you as one who was powerful and influential, but I came as one who was simple and weak. And this is the way he says it. Brothers and sisters, think, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I often hear at times people will say something like, oh, wouldn't it be great if so-and-so came to Christ? They'd have such a powerful influence, right? They're so charismatic. They're so widely known. They could be so strong for the gospel. And I cringe because I think if we trust only in the strength of men, then we rob the gospel of its power. And Paul makes it explicit here that God uses the weak things of the world so that the power of the gospel would be on display. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and part of the family of God and learning to grow in your discipleship and imitation of Jesus, I just want to remind you, don't ever, ever pat yourself on the back. Don't ever think you were worthy or smart enough or that this is what you had earned or deserved. Paul indicates that we, who have been adopted into the family of God, are the weak and the lonely. We are the weak things to shame the strong. We are the things that are so clumsy that God's power would be on display in us and through us. Uh, If God uses us in the expansion of his kingdom, it's more likely that he's using us as blunt and base instruments to show his true power. Uh, The power is not in us. This past week, uh, there was a fellow here at the church. He was doing some work for us, and I struck up a conversation with him, and he was just a great, friendly guy, and we were going back and forth, and um, I, I invited him to come to church. I said, man, we'd love to have you on Sunday. If you, if you don't have a church home, it'd be great. And he told me something interesting. He said, you know, I know about God, but I think if I came to church, I'd just burst into flames. <laughs> and you know what I told him, and I hope he won't mind, and I said, you know what? This place is filled with dirty, rotten sinners. And we're here because God has been gracious to us and he has saved us from our sin through Jesus Christ. We have right standing with God because of Jesus. And he hemmed and hawed, and we're still talking. Uh, But I love the way one of my friends says it. God can make any man good. God can. God can make any man good. Uh, Fourthly, I think we learn here uh, that the gospel effort In the gospel effort, God often uses more than one person. He uses more than one. In fact, I've talked to you a lot about, I think, the power of the collective witness of the body of Christ. Those who have been radically changed by the gospel. And that's seen in a community construct. It's powerful. The world ought to see in us, that group of people is different. Look how they live. Look how they love. They're different. Something has changed them. And the power of Christ should be on display as they observe us. I love Francis Schaeffer's quote, the observable love of true Christians for true Christians is the final apologetic of the gospel. Paul says it this way in in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7, speaking of the the multiple impact uh, within the church uh, for the gospel. He says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has made it grow. Since neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And so the reminder is this. Yes, God can use anyone, and very often God uses much more than one. We have a part to play in the whole. And finally this. 
I think from the book as a whole, we learn that the church of God is to behave as one. Not dividing up in factions, not in fighting, and not just a slightly tamer or more conservative version of the community around us. We are to be a community that is changed increasingly by the gospel. Uh, That's what we are to be. So a pretty outstanding book, an interesting book. It's gonna, there's going to be some hard stuff. Brace for impact. 